Take your Bibles. Let's return to Philippians chapter 1 this morning. Philippians chapter 1. Our text will be verses 3 through 8. We'll be looking at that in just a moment. We are excited for uh, changes in our church life as we think through uh, the vote that is coming up in a week. I would encourage you to be prayerful about that. Um, That's a motion from our church leadership that we would accept this new constitution. Um, We are inviting feedback and discussion at this point. So as you have questions or thoughts or things you'd like us to uh, think about with you or explain, um, we're glad to speak with you. As we saw last week in the introduction in the first two verses, this letter encourages us to embrace a Christ-centered mindset together. We saw that word mindset used throughout this book. We saw that it leads us, it produces joy as we think the way that Paul encourages us to think. This Christ-centered mindset leads to joyful stability even when facing hardships. And that's demonstrated in Paul's life. This is one of the prison epistles. That's what makes this so astounding. It comes from the pen of a man who's in prison. And one of its overwhelming themes is joy. That's quite an offer then if we're hearing this carefully. Joy can be experienced. Peace, contentment, satisfaction. Even when someone is chained to a Roman guard day and night. I want us to think about Paul's imprisonment for just a moment. He faced several different types. But I want to read to you what first century historians tell us of the circumstances, the situation that a prisoner would find himself in. They write, prisons were sleepless places where pallets were not available. One slept on the floor perhaps using their outer cloak as a cover against the cold. Chains and stocks also hindered sleep. Paul says at times he's chained to another guard. Most prisons were devoid of much natural light. The chaining of prisoners caused varied consequent sufferings. Iron chafed and corroded the skin over time. Without recourse to personal resources or the help of friends on the outside for food or drink, the prisoners' prospects could be grim. They officially provided daily prison ration. What was provided to them was poor and intended not for health, but bare survival. Prisons were places of squalor and appalling filth. The permissions of lighter custody might allow for new clothing and visits to the public baths. This could have been more like Paul's situation when he's under house arrest. But it's not a surprise That these awful conditions cause such profound distress of body and soul that prisoners, if they did not become sick and die, wished themselves dead or actively sought suicide. On top of all this, Mediterranean culture was significantly driven by honor and shame. And in such a context, the experience of custody and bonds carried devastating dishonor and shame. And yet, Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes. Look at verse 3. I thank my God. Do you hear the contrast between circumstances and a mindset? I thank my God. In all my remembrance of you, 
always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Let's ask for God's blessing as we consider this passage together. Father, we pray and ask that you would illumine our minds. Lord, we don't just need to learn new information about the Apostle Paul or the Philippians. We need to see Christ. We need to see how his love for us changes the way that we view our circumstances, changes hearts that are often focused solely on our circumstances and what we want to see changed to those that embrace joy, even in the midst of hardship. Lord, as we see how Paul looks and feels about other believers, Lord, we need to embrace that mindset. Lord, I pray that as I speak, whatever are my thoughts and my words, they would fall to the side. Whatever are your words and your thoughts would be honored and obeyed and applied. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. A few months ago, my family and I got into a reality series from the History Channel called Alone. Maybe you've seen it or heard about it. It's an interesting show. It's one of those survival shows where they take contestants and they place them in this remote and challenging area. The one we watched was in Newfoundland, so way up north, uh, right on the edge of a bay. It gets very, very cold. There are predators that live around this lake, and that's part of the challenge. Can these survivalists who are skilled in this go up and live by themselves? They're given very minimal resources. They can choose a certain number and they're given a box of cameras to document their struggle. The goal is to survive the longest. If you do so, you're the winner. It's fascinating to see as the series goes how resourceful and clever these contestants are. It really is a monument to the creative ability that people made in the image of God truly have. Some know plants incredibly well. I don't think I would make it very long at all if it was up to my knowledge of plants. Uh, Others are excellent trappers and hunters. It's intriguing to see how their shelters develop. They're incredibly creative with their shelters. Even being able to build a fireplace inside out of almost no materials other than what they find around them. They face extremely harsh seasons. And yet, though they often struggle to find food and they face the challenges of survival, the greatest challenge is being alone. They often have, they literally have no one to talk to for days on end. And the longest anyone has lasted through 10 seasons has been 78 days. And that person is miserable and almost in need of medical attention immediately. It's a fascinating psychological experiment 
Most uh, contestants request to leave surprisingly early. I was shocked by one who is just a master builder. His shelter was just beautiful. And it was just days and he's like, "I, I can't stand this. I can't be alone like this. It's not that they can't provide for themselves. They can't stand being alone. They miss family and friends. This highlights what we know God says about us as human beings. That we were made to have relationships. We were made to be in community. We need other people. To deprive human beings of others is one of the harshest punishments we can devise. It's called solitary confinement. We need other people. Now in every human culture, in every time in human history, people group themselves together based on what they share in common. We like to be with people who think like us, who share the same values. But there should be a distinction for how Christians are gathered together into a community. We're not just aiming at a community to take care of us. We're aiming at a community that's focused on someone else. Our King. Our Christ. Our Savior. We're grouped together with people who share the same commitment to Christ. And if we lose sight of Him, it makes our community hard to bear, doesn't it? I'm sure you've heard or even seen an illustration around a campfire of pulling a hot ember away from the center of the fire and seeing how quickly it cools off. But when you push it right back toward the rest of the fire, it heats up again and catches flame. This is true of our walk with Christ. We need to be connected and connecting to other healthy believers. Paul's going to demonstrate the deep significance and value of shared gospel commitment. What we'll see in these six verses this morning is that a shared commitment to the gospel is to shape our relationships in the church, in fellowship with other believers. Now, what should shape us as Subaru Road Baptist Church into a vibrant community together? I mean, think about it. We have different views on politics. Maybe you haven't even talked about it because you know that can be a controversial subject. We have different personalities, very different personalities. We come from very different backgrounds. Many of us grew up in in different states, maybe even different countries. We have different interests. But we are gathered here together around a shared commitment to Jesus Christ. He's to be our priority. If we would be built up together in him as our God intends, he must remain our priority. We know many churches, we've experienced them, of churches that struggle with disunity and discord and conflict. And I think really at the very center of that is a church that's lost sight of their purpose for existence. To glorify and obey and be on mission for this king. When we're focused on him, our unity thrives. When we're focused on ourselves and we, what we want our church to be, we create discord and disunity. The focus of our fellowship must be kept on him or we will begin to splinter. 
That's what's happening in this church in Philippi. That's what naturally happens in every church. We shouldn't be surprised by that when we see it. We should instead return to the thing that unifies us. The pressures from outside this church seem to be contributing to the discord on the inside. And we're going to hear how Paul counsels them. How Paul shows them how to think. Even in this prayer he gives this morning. So we'll consider five traits that result from a shared commitment to Christ. First, a shared commitment to Christ shapes our prayers for one another. Paul is chained. He's separated from these dearly beloved fellow believers by hundreds of miles. And yet his bondage could not prevent him from thinking and caring and faithfully praying for them. His remembrance of them is filled with both thanksgiving and joy. Not because they're a perfect church, but because they are Christ's church. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. You're on my mind. I'm thinking of you. I'm grateful for you. Not because you are super people who do nice things for me. But notice, because, verse 5, of your partnership in the gospel. There are many applications that we could discuss from this section, but one that should jump off the page for us is to recognize that Paul's concern for them is selfless. As he prays and thinks and invests in their spiritual growth through prayer, it's demonstrating a selflessness. And just think of this for a moment. He is facing one of the greater hardships in all of life. He's potentially starving. He's in a difficult condition, bound by chains. He has no personal freedom. He could be telling them about what he's suffering. He could be saying, now here's my prayer list. I'm going through a lot. But true Christian fellowship is not focused inward. I want you to see that so clearly. It's outward facing. It's not consumed with receiving, but prioritized self-giving. Paul's selflessness towards others faithfully points us back to who he's following, doesn't it? The Gospels record for us seven sayings that Jesus uttered from the cross. Think of those for just a moment, if you can recall some of them. There's seven. The first three are all focused on others. Even as our Lord is dying in intense pain and agony, after having been beaten, hanging on the cross naked, being in shame, He's still concerned for other people. He prays for the Roman soldiers, his torturers. He prays for their forgiveness, even as they're the cause of his suffering. He then offers eternal comfort to the thief next to him, who earlier had been mocking him. And he cares for his mother, even in the midst of his agony. When you're gathered together with a group of fellow believers, evaluate what your conversation, what your heart tends to be like. Are you more focused on yourself or on others? Now, I'm not saying in any way it's wrong to share your burdens. I'm not saying it's wrong for you to share your prayer requests or concerns with others. But do you spend more time talking about yourself 
what you want others to know about you. What you want others to know that you're going through. What you want others to know that you know. Or how you might listen and encourage someone else. Again, it's not wrong to share our concerns. But are you focused on yourself or on others? It's like being on a good team that prioritizes sharing the ball. People aren't often eager to pass to the ball to a person who never passes it back to them. But when the ball moves quickly from one teammate to the other, the harmony and teamwork are a joy to watch, are a joy to be a part of. The most enjoyable teams are not the teams with the best players, but the team that has the best cohesion, the best harmony. They conquer greater obstacles than the team sometimes with the more gifted players. In the church, the more you give of yourself to others, the more your spirit is nourished and fed. And that is what Paul is showing to us in this letter. It's the opposite of the way that our heart naturally thinks. The more I give away of myself, the more I'm encouraged. It's actually opposite than what we think. Do you see how Paul also demonstrates that grateful, grateful, he starts with thanksgiving. And persistent prayer for one another is a great gift to a church family. Is this prioritized as much as it ought to be among us? Both individually and collectively. I I mean, just think about it. You may feel like you don't have as much to contribute as someone else in the church family. Paul's restricted from being with them. This isn't fellowship like coffee and donuts or the church potluck, is it? He's nowhere near them. But he is committed to praying for them. Perhaps you're now a shut-in listening to this service at home. Perhaps your days of serving in the nursery or at a church fellowship are over. And yet you can serve your church family through this immensely vital ministry of prayer. You don't have to be a part of any official church program to faithfully participate in the discipleship of other believers. Do you see how significant this is? Do you ever pray for fellow members of your church family? Do you ever consider using simple church as a prayer list instead of as just an information source? Can you see how this would change your entire perception of the spiritual work that God intends to do among us? Can you see that this is the real work of the ministry? If you're struggling with another believer, whether it's your spouse or sibling, another member, could you consider committing to praying for them regularly? How might that change your perception? You know, it's very difficult to stay angry at someone that you're praying for consistently and sincerely. Pastor and author James Boyce states, I think that 90% of all the division between true believers in this world would disappear entirely if Christians would learn to pray specifically and constantly for one another. Do you believe that prayer actually changes God's people? Paul does. And again, it's not wrong to pray for physical needs. This is a thank you letter for some of the ways that they contributed to him materially. 
But notice the content of his prayer is not primarily focused on material things. It's on their spiritual well-being and health. This is how we're to pray for one another. It again shows us that the most important work done in the church is accomplished through the ordinary means. Here we have an apostle separated by bars and chains, yet intimately connected with this body through prayer. It's available to every believer at any time. So pray for your church family members by name. Maybe consider sending a text or an email and finding out what requests a fellow member may have. It shouldn't be off-putting to hear from a member in the body who you may not know well to say, hey, how could I be praying for you? I'm praying through the church directory. I want to know how I can pray better for you. Don't just pray for your life group when you're at life group. Remember their requests throughout the week. On your way to work, during your personal devotions, during family devotions. Commit yourself to praying for one another. Second, a shared commitment to Christ shapes our service alongside one another. In verses 5 and 7, we see two words that demonstrate this shared commitment. This is kind of the controlling idea of these verses. It's a prayer of thanksgiving for their partnership. And that's the word, partnership and partakers. These two words come from the same basic Greek word. It's the word we often hear as fellowship, koinonia. And notice that in both instances, what they share together is their common commitment to Christ and the advance of the gospel. It is fine and a wonderful blessing to be able to share a cup of coffee together or a meal together or our life group fellowships together. But that's not the essence of Christian fellowship, is it? It's sharing a common commitment to Christ and the advance of the gospel. We are here on a mission. And in the Western world in 2023, it's not to be as comfortable as possible. It's to risk and to plan and to invest and to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. And we need more energy put into that. We need to continue to push ourselves in that direction. So what should bring us together is our common commitment to the person and work of Christ as we gather in worship. That's what makes our worship meaningful is we're coming and responding to him, to what we know he's done in our lives. We're gathered together and we can look across this room and say there's a miracle of grace and there's a miracle of grace and there's a miracle of grace. Look at what our God is able to do. We delight to make him the center of our attention. We're to be eager to talk to others about what he's doing in our life currently and hearing what he's doing in their life. It's not wrong to talk about your favorite football team. But if that's all you ever talk about, how is that even Christian? We're quick to talk about opportunities as well, to share the gospel with friends and neighbors and coworkers. And the challenge a text like this puts before us is have we lost sight of what biblical fellowship, partnership, commitment is all about? Do we practice this as well as we should? 
I would answer this as the shepherd, as the pastor of this church. I think we're getting better at it. But we still need to grow. I'm encouraged by the things that I see in this text as we think about it for our church family. But at the same time, I'm burdened that we grow more and more in maturity. More and more in selflessness. More and more in a clear, careful, intentional commitment to the gospel. Nothing else really matters about us, does it? Number three, a shared commitment to Christ shapes our confidence for the future. Verse six again, we know this verse well. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In this verse, Paul expresses his confidence that because he's seen their genuine commitment to the gospel's advance, he's offering them encouragement, assurance. He knows the Lord will complete that work of salvation in them. We know salvation is not just a one-time moment. The way that Paul talks about it here is that it's that entire process until we see Christ on that day that he comes. Think about it. Very often our fellowship with one another, with brothers and sisters in Christ, is halted when we recognize they don't think like us. They don't look like us. They don't act like us. They don't talk like us. I'll keep them at an arm's distance then. We're threatened or put off by those with a different viewpoint or a different personality or with different gifts. But verse 6 reminds us practically that I'm not responsible to change others. Aren't I frustrated? Because if they just thought like me, then maybe they'd be easier to be around. But that's not Paul's thinking here. That's not how this verse challenges us to think. God is at work in genuine believers within this body. It may be slow work. It may be work you can't see. But he's saying God is at work in you. So Euodia and Syntyche, remember this gospel commitment and agree in the Lord. Church body, remember our commitments together in Christ if we're regularly reminding ourselves that God's work in others is not finished, that he's committed to building up his people, he's committed to that, then I can be committed to that as well. And we can simply engage in this work that he's doing in them, speaking the truth in love so that the body builds itself up in love, praying for them faithfully, being an encouragement to them, We can trust that God changes fellow believers no matter how difficult or frustrating they might be. No matter how discouraged we might be as we share the word with them. This applies in our homes with our spouses and our children. Your job isn't to change anyone. It's to trust in the God who can change anyone. This mindset then places all of our confidence on him. That's freeing. It's freeing. All I do is trust him to do that work, is to pray faithfully that he keeps going, that I'm able to see maybe a little bit in this life. And if not, I trust that he's doing that work, that he promises that he's doing right here in verse six. We're simply to be conduits of grace in the lives of other people. Just consider what we will be as God continues his work in us. C.S. Lewis explains this mindset in his book, The Weight of Glory. 
He says it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. And he says that in little g. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. A glorified believer is what he's saying. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another. And he makes this final concluding statement that we need to think through carefully. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Think of how that applies in a church family who we are in Christ. What we are now is not what we will be. How are you helping prepare others to reach what God is intending them to be? Number four, a shared commitment to Christ shapes who we include. We should also notice the significance in these six verses on a repeated word. It's a small word. It's the word all. Look back through these verses again. It appears five times. Four of them are meaning intentionally. Paul places them to say all of you. It's not just part of the plural pronoun. He's saying it intentionally to say, I am including this whole church and you need to think about the whole body. He says in verse seven, it is right for me to hold this view of you all. Because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. He's saying every believer is included. This is one of the major themes of this letter. It's unity. All who are following Christ are to be included in our partnership. That's how we're to think of the body. No one gets left out or pushed to the fringes. As believers mature in Christ, they are more and more eager to reach out to those that are less like them. Their insecurities and self-centeredness diminish as they focus more and more on encouraging others on the fringe of the community. Think of how Jesus reaches out to the woman at the well. She's nothing like him. But he loves her and has compassion on her and speaks truth to her. Imagine what our church would look like if we continued to grow in helping others feel welcomed into our group of friends. Into understanding this isn't just a friend group. This is a group of Christ followers. Imagine if our first interactions were not focused on those with whom we are most comfortable. But we were outward facing toward those we did not know as well. And again, how thankful I am that we have grown in this. And yet, how much more room do we have to grow? And the question isn't, are we all doing well? But are you contributing to how we're doing as a church? Are you personally investing in reaching out to others in order to care for them? You know, remember, several years ago now, we sought to practice this when we were challenged to change the way that we walked into church. We did that series where we talked about how to walk into church. 
And it was action based on an other-centered mindset. The encouragement was to change where you sat. Even move yourself physically to help you with this mindset. You're to change where you sit so you get to know and invest in those that you don't know so well. Our church is large enough that there's no way you can know everybody well by being in the same place week after week after week. And that's not the only thing that we can do to do this, to grow in this. But perhaps this would be a good practice to try again. Enter the auditorium or your Sunday school class looking for someone to talk to outside your comfortable circle of friends. There are people who experience life much more uh, differently than you do. I think as we grow more and more honest and open with each other, you'll find that people are struggling in life and need encouragement from fellow members in Christ who will love them and listen to them and care for them. Look for the person who no one is talking to you, talking to when you arrive. Find out how they're doing. Find out how their week went. It wouldn't be crazy to ask, how did you come to know Christ? It wouldn't be wrong to ask how you can pray for them this week or what God has been teaching them. In fact, these should be common questions among us. Now, I know this will push us out of our comfort zone, but isn't that exactly what Christ-like service is intended to do? Notice that phrase, partakers of grace. That should humble us. That should inform us and shape the way we think of one another. As I grow in Christ, I realize more and more how much spiritual growth is truly his work, his strength, his enablement, and not my own. I recognize just how amazing and constant God's grace is in my life. I see the initiative he takes for my growth. The more I read the Bible and understand the nature of my sin and my need, the more I'm thankful for his initiative in bringing me to himself. I am an undeserving recipient of his steadfast love and favor. And that's what it means to be a partaker of his grace. This is how we are to view other believers as well. We're all partakers of the same grace in Christ. This puts every person on the same level in need of him. The church is a hospital for the sick. We're not here dressed up and acting like we've got everything together. We come to meet with the physician of our souls. There are no different classes of believers in the church. And I'm to view others the same way Paul does when he calls himself a slave And he elevates his fellow believers by calling them saints. Think of it. God so values those around you that he shed his blood for them. So can I not be a little awkward and say, how did you come to Christ? How could I pray for you this week? What's happening in your life? My responsibility is to remind myself of their significance based on his view of them. On his grace. I mean, think of it. Paul could have been arrogant to these believers. And maybe it wouldn't even be arrogance. I mean, he's led them to Christ. He's the founder of their church. He's the famous apostle. He's done all kinds of things in the service of Christ. He's been used. He's gifted. He's such a threat to unbelievers that they lock him away and try to close his mouth. 
But Paul always measured himself in comparison to Christ, not in comparison to others. In 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he calls himself the least of all the apostles. Later in Ephesians 3, 8, he writes he's the least of all the saints. And finally, in 1 Timothy 1, 5, he calls himself the chief of sinners. You see, Paul saw himself as a sinner in desperate need of grace. He never, never, never got over that. And that shapes how he views other people. That's how while he's in prison, he's like, look at how God has poured himself out to me. Of course I can care for other people. This is not sacrifice. Every believer stands on the same level ground. And we're continually to view one another through those gospel lenses. Lastly, number five. A shared commitment to Christ shapes our affections for one another. What these verses demonstrate is that as we practice true Christian fellowship, as we choose to view one another through this mindset, then our affection, our feelings, our desire, our love for one another grows. It comes through a mindset. It's built up over time. Verses 7 and 8 are filled with language of affection that initially we're like, I don't feel that way about other people. Because these believers are united with him in service to Christ, because they've shared that commitment through their gracious actions, that relationship then has deepened. They're committed to the same thing. They're going the same way. They're sacrificing for the same king. This is often the language of Paul in his letters. He writes in 1 Thessalonians 2.8, So we cared for you because we loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. I think we see this in a church today. Picture a healthy short-term mission team laboring and serving, being pushed out of their comfort zone for the sake of gospel advance, wearing themselves out in service for others. What are they like when they come back? They very often return home with a greater commitment to Christ and a greater affection for one another. Here's the challenge that may have come to your mind when you see this language of affection. How can I develop heartfelt love for another Christian that I find so hard to be around? We've lived in the church long enough. We understand what it's like to be around people. We know that churches are filled with sinners. How do I love someone that irritates me consistently, whose personality grates on mine, who I feel like I don't have anything in common with them? You'll have to practice all of these things that we see here in this text. You'll need to pray diligently for that person. You'll need to think often of your shared commitment to Christ and his service. You see, you do have something in common with them. The most important thing about you. You're going to have to trust God to continue his work in his or her life. You should ask to hear his testimony or background. Find out how he came to Christ. Find out how he's struggled through life. What's his story? You're going to have to remember how much you both need God's grace in your life. And yet there's one final factor to consider. We might try to do all of these things and just clean ourselves up a bit and have as good a relationships as we can have 
in our own strength. But that all changes when we see in verse 8 how clearly this is not about us. He says again, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ. Or we could say the affection that comes from Christ. As believers, we're to show the very same affection that Christ has shown to us. Author J.B. Lightfoot writes, The believer has no yearnings apart from the Lord. His pulse beats with the pulse of Christ. His heart throbs with the heart of Christ. You love other people out of the overflow of God's love for you. And if you think God doesn't love you that much because you're not meditating on the truths of the gospel, you're not going to have much love to show other people. Another author aptly summarizes Paul's deeply emotional expression of Christian affection in this verse is not primarily the sign of a gushing temperament, but of a gushing Christology. You see, it's the overflow of his understanding of what Christ has done for him. The power of the gospel is shown in the supernatural affection that it produces, not only for Jesus Christ himself, but also for those who belong to Jesus Christ. We love others because Christ has loved us and he loves them. There's a triangle that's made. And if I disconnect from that triangle, if I disconnect from Christ, I can only have at best human friendships. Commitments based on my selfish desires for what I want others to provide to me. Instead, in Christ, this affection is deepened as believers experience fellowship in the gospel. Local bodies of believers should display a loving unity not explicable along merely social lines. People who have little or nothing in common on social, political, or ethnic bases are brought together by the Holy Spirit in unified devotion to Christ and the advance of the gospel. Our text urges us to let Christ's selfless commitment reshape our commitment to each other. Christ provides us with the motivation and the model. If I'm viewing my fellow believers as Christ does, I will Give thanks for them, even when they may be hard to love or when I see their flaws. If I'm viewing my fellow believers as Paul does here, then I will sincerely pray for them. If I view my fellow believers as Christ does, then I will be confident in the work that he is doing in them. I will see them for what God is changing them into. If I see my fellow sisters and brothers in Christ as he does, I will rejoice in our partnership, in service. I'll be focused on serving him. When I view my brothers and sisters as Christ does, my heart will be filled with affection for fellow sinners that it doesn't make sense for me to love, that still need to grow, that often can hurt me or frustrate me. Only Christ can produce a community like this. Embracing our shared commitment to Christ leads to deep affection for one another. Isn't this what Jesus said should mark us? He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you have love 
for one another. So what will refocus and reshape your perspective on fellow believers in your life? A commitment to love them, thank God for them, pray for them, partner with them, and care for them as he has loved you. We can't be what God wants us to be in our own strength. We can't apply this truth in our families, in our relationships, in the church by merely trying to be polite or by merely trying to muster up the right response in our own strength. This goes beyond just acting nicely for the couple hours we're at church together. This means deep care and concern for one another. That means I pray for you even when I don't see you. That means I think of you and your spiritual growth. The power to change your view of others must come from dwelling on Christ's love for you. Only then will it go deep inside and begin to transform you. So where do you need to repent this morning of failing to be selfless in your Christian commitment to others? Where have you been stingy or unconcerned or selfish toward others? Where have you been judgmental, resentful, or even bitter? passage urges us turn from these sins and let Christ's love for you shape your commitment to fellow believers do you see Paul's example for us here it's astounding to see a man who's under such strain facing such difficult circumstances continue to turn his heart to Christ and love people who are probably irritating they're struggling with some pretty basic things And yet he's delighted, he's delighted to continue to point them back to our Christ. Let's ask for his help as we conclude. Our God in heaven, we are grateful for our Savior. We're grateful for his selfless service for us. We're grateful that he models for us what love looks like. We're grateful that he has pursued us while we were still sinners. We're grateful for the conviction of your spirit who illumines our minds to sin, righteousness, and judgment. Lord, I pray that we would be humble this morning. Certainly, if we're honest with ourselves, we can't say we measure up to this model, to this standard, to Christ's likeness. Though we may be able to see fruit and growth, we would see more. We would pursue greater maturity in Christ. Lord, we need your help to do that. Every fiber of our being is bent towards self. We want to be the center of attention. But only as we fall in love with Jesus Christ, only as we recognize the gospel, the person and work of Jesus Christ, Lord, will we love as we have been loved. Lord, we want to be a church body that those who come and uh, join us even for a service, even talk to our members for a little while can see that we are different because of our commitment to Christ. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. May that be accomplished in us in attitude, in action, and in deed. It's in the name of our Savior we pray. Amen.